0: I hope you guys are all listening, reading, and enjoying. Uh, I am in another day in self-isolation up here in Stony Point, Ontario. And today was going to be a very good day to reach out to a brand new friend. Uh, I am uh, bringing you today with Mike Baldessari. He is a Tony and Emmy-nominated lighting designer at Mycomatic Industries. Thank you so much for making the time today to chat with me, Mike.
1: My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: Happy belated birthday, by the way. I believe I missed it by just about a day. (laughs)
1: Yes, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: How was your birthday in isolation?
1: Well, I had a lot of fun. Luckily, the two people I'm isolated with is my wife and my daughter, and thankfully we get along. So we had a very nice day, and we live in Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, which for anybody who doesn't know where that is, it is uh, when you see all those great pictures of Manhattan, they're all taken from Hoboken. So when this all hit, we had a bug out due to um, my wife's in a high-risk category with her asthma. So we have a house in East Hampton, New York, um, up in the woods out on the end of Long Island. And so we, we've been here for like two months. And the only reason I bring that up as it relates to my birthday is um, we have a neighbor who's a commercial fisherman. He's a Bayman. Um, just like in the Billy Joel song, Down Easter Alexa. He, he's one of those guys. And I ran into him on the street and he was telling me what's been happening with the commercial fishing industry and because all the restaurants are closed and all that kind of stuff. He said, you know, we're getting 1980s prices. And I said, well, hey, we'll buy some fish from you. And since he's a commercial fisherman, he said, well, I can't clean it for you or anything like that. So he showed up on my birthday with three whole fish. And uh, which so I've never even touched a fish that big. I'm a guy (laughs) from Jersey. (laughs) You know, I don't ever touch fish like that. So you can find anything on YouTube. And so we found uh, how to fillet these fish on a YouTube thing. And so on my birthday, I, for the first time, filleted three giant uh, scupper fish. And it was a little gory, but really cool.
0: What a great skill to learn. That, happy birthday. That's, yeah. uh, <laughs> you had to unwrap your own presence there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> and actually, I, I have to say, I... um. I always tell the story, my family had been in, has been in Hoboken for over 100 years and they emigrated to the United States and had a fish store. So I remember as a little kid going to the fish store and eels crawling around and crabs and all of that kind of stuff. I never had it in me to, to, to have anything to do with that. It's incredibly hard work that those folks do. But I felt like I had it in my blood somewhere, so I had to try it at least.
0: Good for you. I think that uh, anybody who is eating meat should at l- least know how to do their own fish and kind of realize the the work and the effort that goes into it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I've been a, essentially a pescatarian, but mostly a vegetarian for for over thirty years now. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but but I do eat fish. And so, yeah, it, it was, and the other thing we did was with all of the, the fish guts and all that kind of stuff, cause I didn't know where to get rid of it. So I brought <laughs> it back down to the water and, um, you know, fed it to the crabs and, and all of that stuff.
0: I think that's the best thing you can do. That sounds very circle of lifey.
1: Yeah. Recycling and yeah. all of that.
0: I think that might even be considered upcycling there. I think that they <laughs> they, they went to a good cause there. Yeah, we do the same here. We do with our compost. We try and at least get everything all the nutrients back to where they belong instead of going down the drain or something, you know. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean I, we did I did feel good about it was 100% used and and you know, we're grateful for those fish that they provided us a meal. It's, it's
0: the little things that we can do to make life a little more bearable. Yeah. That's one of the things that I'm finding these days too is I'm finding that a lot of people are really really willing to help out their neighbor in any way they can. They're saying man we're all in this together so i've got some fish you look hungry let's break some bread and here's some fish i'm not supposed to do this i'm supposed to send this to a, a distributor and get have yeah. it wholesaled and frozen and shipped off but
1: yeah exactly and i felt at least like if he's not he's still going out fishing and he said luckily for him you know uh fuel prices are are far enough down but it but it was almost not making sense he said because of the prices were so low. So I'm more than happy to give a few bucks to my neighbor.
0: What an interesting situation we're at where gas prices are lower than ever before. Flights are the cheapest they're ever going to be. And we can't yeah. go <laughs> anywhere. We can't yeah. drive to do anything. So let's uh, let's sit at home and eat with our families.
1: Yeah. I Listen, I, I thank God, you know, I, I love my wife and daughter. I, I'm very happy to be with them, you know, 20, 24-7 and You know, but, but that's a difficult thing for people too. you you know, this is a challenging time. And our our daughter is a a senior in high school. Uh, So, you know, we unfortunately got the disappointing news the other day that the rest of the year is canceled. Um, And so, you know, all of those rites of passages, all those rites of passage have all gone away, you know, the prom and graduation and all of that kind of stuff. So we have to figure that out as well.
0: Uh, I do love seeing all the socially distanced proms and graduations and stuff that are happening, but it's just not the same. It's not the same, but we're going to participate
1: in, you know, the Obamas are doing like a virtual thing that they're going to be the commencement speakers at and Oprah's doing something. And y- you know, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to participate in, in that stuff.
0: How interesting is it that that's what we need to do to try and get back to the same impact the same emotional impact is we have to have celebrities and we have to have the whole world come together. Whereas normally we could just, just by the fact that your community is coming together, that's a big enough uh, celebration to make it all worthwhile. But now we have to really step it up to get that same emotional impact.
1: Well, I I think that, thank God we have all of this technology. If this had happened 10 or 15 years ago, We'd really be lost, you know. Th- this is this is truly, you know. And I think, particularly in our business, when like we are a technology business, we're around technology all day, every day. But oh my God, where would society be had if we didn't have all of this technology, you know?
0: Yeah. I, my wife and I had a a long discussion the other day about how weird it was that we didn't listen to the radio. We don't have broadcast television. We are doing all of this because our phones are telling us to do this. Yeah. Good point. I didn't know that school was closed until I got a phone call from the school, but I had known, I knew an hour before from Facebook that school was going to be closed before I got the phone call from school.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing that I I said, a friend of mine, uh, you know, it's also nice. I reconnected this past weekend with some people I went to college with who I haven't seen in, you know, 30 years or so. Some folks who were not technology people. And I said, technology has been my life. And I said, really going back to people probably don't remember that like when Skype started, it wasn't video, it was audio only. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I was in, I was touring and I was in Germany and, you know, my daughter was three at the time. And I don't I'm not sure if you have kids, but, you know, three-year-olds don't understand a telephone, but a three-year-old understands when they can see somebody and talk that way. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was Skype. Uh, and then there was another program called Festoon. So you had to launch Skype and then launch Festoon and you could video conference. Mm-hmm. And that was, that made all of the difference in the world. When my daughter was, was really young uh, and I was either on tour or working in Europe or whatever, or Japan, it made all the difference in the world. A long time ago, I forget which one of the trade magazines had a, a column, what are you using now? And people said, oh, I found this strobe light, I found this light, I found that light. And I did a whole column about Skype because you know it was one of those things of like, yes, it's great, you can do banking on your computer, but there was other ways to do banking. But once it, it, that was that was the single thing that changed my life at that period. Forget strobe lights and, and strip lights and had. <laughs> y- you know, it was that I could still have a family and still be engaged with my family, regardless of where I was.
0: I would go as far as to say that the touring industry related divorce rates went down after Skype and FaceTime. Because you could connect i know when i'm out for a long periods of time i would can only imagine the, the the night that my wife her imagination starts to wander and she's like what is he doing what's going on well he hasn't sure. called and nowadays she only has to deal with that for eight hours at a time whereas right. 10 yeah. 15 years ago the spouse that stayed home had to deal with that for three three weeks three months at a time
1: yeah 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 the only downside would be when you know the video screen tech is skyping with his girlfriend on the video server, you know, (laughs) luckily our bandwidth has gotten a little better.
0: That is the, the, the polar opposite extreme there, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The video server would crash and it's like, get off the thing with your girlfriend, would you, you know?
0: Yeah. Back then Skype was pricey too. I mean, it was, yeah a dollar a minute or something when it first came out it was it wasn't nearly as cheap as what we're dealing with these days yeah exactly so yeah uh to answer your question i have two kids they are i have eight-year-old twins i've been touring since they were born as well and even now i don't tour as much but i still travel just as much and i have facetiming with them is still tough they, they right. still don't they, you're going on a ride when you hand them the phone and right. uh, they say you say talk to dad you're you might end up on the, on the bathroom floor or you might end up in the toy chest or something. You don't know what's going to happen. But,
1: but they know that they have it. And, you know, in another couple of years, you'll give them their own iPhone and then they'll hit you up when they need, they're having a fight with their sibling or whatever. And, you know, why is mm-hmm. mom yelling at me? And they'll hit you up and you'll be in the middle of something guaranteed it but yeah
0: so how did that change for you you were touring before sophia was born and right. then did did your touring did your priorities switch when sophia was was a, a younger child
1: i can't say that my priorities switched in that like here here's my priorities i'm a provider first i'm a father second i'm a husband third and i'm a lighting designer fourth so one and four are tied obviously um, I don't feel like my priority ever changed, but I still had to always be a provider. And, you know, the the advantage of having one child was that, uh, and my, my wife is a writer, so they came with me a lot, was really good. Not necessarily like on tours, but if but even like, you know, there was a tour I was doing with Neil Young and we were sitting in London, I think for two or three weeks or something, and they came over, which was great. And there was a lot of other times when I was working in Europe where I was in one place for a couple of weeks and they, they would come with me. So I wouldn't say the priorities changed, but luckily I had a partner uh, or have a partner who has always adapted to what the situation had to be. And listen, I I think I'm not anybody to to give that kind of advice, but when I've done like master classes for kids who are just getting out of college and they ask, you know, how do you have a family? And the answer is you have to have a partner. You know, my wife always says, I knew what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. You really have to have a partner who understands what our business is like
0: that is pivotal that is absolutely so important i i know a lot of people that have really felt tricked a lot of spouses who either they met when they weren't touring and then they were touring or vice versa and it's it's a lot you have to really adapt and be willing to take your lumps on those because it changes your whole world
1: yeah and and i i think it's the thing you know anybody out there would say the same thing you know our business I always say it's not very glamorous. It's perceived glamor, but it's not very glamorous. And you know, people in our business generally work really, really hard. They don't work the kind of hours that other people do. You know, it's really is a way of life. It's not a job. And so unless you can have a, a partner who understands that you're kind of destined for not a good ending.
0: Yeah. So my wife used to be a teacher and there was no way you could call her when she was working. Right. And I used to have to use that as a comparison to when she would try and call me and I couldn't answer. I'm like, babe, I'm at work 20, sometimes 20 hours a day. Like yeah. I want to talk to you too, but I'm, I'm at work. Like I can't talk to you in the middle of a show. I can't talk to you during load in. Yeah. Uh, Unless I sneak away to the bathroom and then I get caught sneaking away in the bathroom, talking to my wife and what are you doing then? Right. My wife. I
1: I, I mean, my routine, particularly like when I'm out of town and working in the theater and stuff is I spend my time, you know, generally from the hotel to the theater that I usually spend on the phone with, with them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then whenever we take breaks and stuff like that, And, and I've learned over time to say, I have 10 minutes, I can talk, you know, so just so that because it's not fair to let somebody get into a, a deep subject and then say, I have to go. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's something I I've learned, you know, the hard way. I have to that say. is very important. Yeah. I, I have 10, I can talk right now for 10 minutes. And then it's up to whoever you're talking to, to, to if they want to get into a heavier subject or not.
0: So when you were bringing your family out, did it ever align up that you were working with a client that your family wanted to come see? Cause I know you've done lots of things, including Yo Gabba Gabba and Madagascar yeah. live and stuff that I would have think that uh, Sophia, when she was younger would have been very interested in. She, did you she, ever get to be like the rock star dad who got to bring your daughter to a show that she really wanted to see.
1: When I started doing those things, she was a little bit just past that pocket.
0: Ah, so close. You
1: know? But, but you know, I did get to bring nieces and nephews and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, and then actually as she kept, Getting a little bit older before she went into she's graduating from High Tech High, which is a performing arts uh, or it has a performing arts academy as part of it. And before she got into that, like she did, come out a couple of times and was like working in the wardrobe department. And and she came with me in February. She was on her winter break, uh, and I was doing a Netflix special in Atlanta. And so she came along and she worked as a as a PA. Uh, wow! Yeah, so that you know, it's it's been more of that kind of stuff. I'm trying to think of other other things. She's been a very um, because she's grown up around it. None of it's ever like crazy impressed her. The only time I I have to say I ever saw her sort of starstruck was you know she's a big SNL fan and I was doing an SNL and she she met Bill Hader who I had also worked with Bill and uh, Fred Armiston doing. Um, documentary now. So I kind of knew those guys. And she was just, it was the one time I saw her kind of very shy about uh, being around Bill Hader. The other thing I'll tell you that that's funny and but weird as well. um, (laughs) I I was doing the movie Nine. So I I lit all the musical numbers for the movie musical Nine. And we were shooting it at Shepparton uh, in London. And I was there for, I think, four months, and they came over. And for anybody who doesn't know, that, that movie is a Rob Marshall movie with, like, Daniel Day-Lewis is the male lead, and then the females are, like, Judy Dench and Sophia Loren and uh, Marianne Coutillard and Penelope Cruz and Nicole Kidman and Kate Hudson and Fergie. I think that's, mo- that's most of them. Star-studded. So, yeah, star So we were, and again, you know, none of that ever impressed my daughter at all. Um, but the producer, now here's here's the weird part. The producer was Harvey Weinstein. And the way that we lit that show, uh, the way we lit those music numbers was we had, the, the set was the size of a football field. And we did 14 different numbers on this set. And so the set was redressed all the time. But it, it was so big that we had this rolling platform. And on the rolling platform was was myself, the director, Rob Marshall, and the DP, uh, Dion Beebe. And like, we were the only ones who were ever allowed on this platform. Um, But Harvey was there and we were on a break and my wife and daughter were up on the platform and Harvey comes up on the platform. And he sees my daughter who was like six or seven at the time. And he says, I I hate to even say, he, he basically said, Hey, would you like to meet Hannah Montana, which was like the biggest pop star in the world at the time. And he was trying to ingratiate himself to, you know, this young kid. And um, he said, uh, you know, it's a little bit. He said, Hey, would you like to meet Hannah Montana? And my daughter goes, "Uh, I don't have to. And he (laughs) says, would you like to meet Selena Gomez? And he says, "Uh, I don't have to. And then he said, you know, would you like to meet and some other team you know sensation at the time and she says oh i don't have to and he just looked at her and he said damn showbiz kid and he walked away so.
0: she was too smart she didn't have yeah. any of his shit yeah like yeah. i well, i can feel where this is going i don't need any of your shit i don't need anything you yeah.
1: she had the right spidey senses let's put it that way
0: you have a you have a wonderful and clever daughter i can tell already <laughs> <laughs> well done She's, uh, she's going to be well ahead of her years. Yeah. That must be a great feeling to, to be able to bring her into the industry in a, in a responsible way.
1: I, I will be really honest. Um, you know, the, the Netflix special that I was doing was a smaller one. I had checked in with the producers first, and I have to say, my daughter killed it. She did. I, I'm not just saying that, you know, like she's been in a performing arts high school and all of that kind of stuff. So I feel like one of those things that you have to do as a parent if you have a kid who's in a performing arts school and stuff is you have to be able to divorce yourself from, you know, Mm -hmm. there's my kid up there. I'm proud of my kid, but can I look at what they're really doing? You know, are, are they a good actor? Are they a good writer? Are they, you know, all of, all of that kind of stuff. And so when she was on this job, you know, she, she worked her butt off. She really killed herself. And I was very, that's what I was the most proud of her. You know, I was very proud that she had the right work ethic, you know, and that that's the, that's the key to, to me. That's the indication, you know, it's was like, is somebody willing to really work hard? And it was, you know, she was being the low, she was the lowest level PA you could be. Um, and she worked her butt off. And both of the producers uh, who she was working for both said something to me afterwards or emailed me afterwards. And the other thing I thought was important, and it's something we've always done for her is I've always try to show her examples of strong female leaders you know i just think that's just a natural thing to do but you know in this case it was the perfect show because it wasn't too big Uh, it was a female comedian but also the lead producers and stuff were all women and i think that's important
0: that is very important it's very important to have uh, role models uh, regardless of gender that's amazing to be able to bring her in and show her like this is all possible right What does, uh, what does Arlene think of you bringing Sophia into the rock and roll Broadway world?
1: Well, I think that it's, it is one of those things we have had that discussion and it's, it's hard to deny it when it's the family business. You know, the the thing that makes you hesitant is knowing how hard it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a little bit like having your daughter wanting to be a backhoe operator if you're a <laughs> operator. <You> yeah <laughs> I mean I, I think that what we've tried to do is expose her to a lot of the different parts of show business and it's not just being an actor or, or, or that kind of thing and uh, Richard Frankel who is he's a Broadway general manager he was he was one of the producers of the producers. I was telling him about uh, Sophia at one point and he said, you know, the thing about it, about show business is pretty much everybody gets into the business as a performer or, you know, has a performing background. Like that's sort of the first inclination. That's the first thing that most people start out as, you know, Mm -hmm. in some way or another. Did you ever do that? Were you a performer at all?
0: I was not. I am uh, I am technical theater through and through.
1: But before you even started in technical theater, were you like in the school band? Were you, you know?
0: Zip zero. There was a a really hot girl in my high school that I wanted to meet and she was an actress and I wanted to get to know her. So I got into technical theater to be around her and then she left and I didn't.
1: All right. Well, there's the other big motivation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, but, but I do, I feel like we've tried to show her and encourage her to do other things than just performing and be very, you know, we've always been super honest with her about, you know, even like when she was starting going towards musical theater, we said, all right, well, look at how many acting jobs there are, you know, in total, when you look at film and television and theater and how many are actual musical theater jobs, it's really a very small sliver. Yeah. when You put the whole thing together and she's gone a bit towards writing and uh, she had a play that she wrote last year that had a couple of like staged readings, including in New York City and stuff. And that's one of the things that unfortunately happened this spring was she had a, a second round of uh, another play that she wrote. Very timely. It was a, a two-character play that happens in a closet, happening during an active shooter drill. But is it? Oh a my God! So very apropos to you know what those kids are dealing with. Anyway, so that was supposed to be a. a George Street in New Brunswick was going to do a production, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and um, Manhattan Rep in New York City. So it's a bummer that those had to get canceled.
0: The entire play takes place in a closet.
1: Yes. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's you know it's it's a twenty minute play, but it yeah it's it's what happens between these two kids who that are sounds riveting. Uh, uh, it's it's I I think for their age that's you know apropos and timely you and I didn't have to go through active shooter drills and all that
0: stuff, you know? No. So man, what a great, I mean, it's a sad premise that it, it is a great idea, but wow, that's, that sounds very powerful. I could see how that could go 20 minutes.
1: Yeah. So, so anyway, but the, but the point being that we've encouraged her and, and one of the things about being in, in the business is to be able to say, you know, well, here's our friend, Suzanne, who she knows very well. And Suzanne is a Broadway publicist, you know, so that's another job that people don't necessarily know about. Or, you know, we have other friends who are Broadway general managers, or who are sound engineers, or, or you know, all of these other things or sound designers. And, you know, I, I think that that's the Important thing is to you know help open open up to her. There's a whole world out there of show business that doesn't involve being in front of hot lights.
0: So I I, will, I really want to get your advice on this one because I go I go back and forth on this one. I, I I look I look at it from both sides. I have two kids and I would love to be able to open up the entire world of rock and roll and theater and technical theater to them because i feel like i could give them a huge leg up i could i could show them the world i could show them the technologies and everything that's available but at the same time it also feels like unfettered nepotism in the fact that i would be basically influencing them to come into my job and denying them if there is something else that they're more interested in the reason that i reserve myself from is because i think about if my parents had done the same to me my mom was a nurse and my father was a, a winery inspector If my dad tried to introduce me to the world of winery inspection, it would have been a very sad denial of my dad's family profession. Or if my mom tried to bring me into the nursing world, I I don't think I would have thrived the same way I do these days. Where do you walk the line? How do you try and decide if you're just encouraging or if you're influencing?
1: I think of, there's a great John Lennon story. Uh, When John Lennon was in, in school and they asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? And his answer was happy. And they said, said, you don't understand the question. And he said, you don't understand the answer. And I I go towards that. So I feel like, you know, what? look, there's a lot of incredible things about being a nurse. I have one of my sisters is a nurse. I have another sister who's also in healthcare. There's a lot of great things about that. There's probably some really cool things about being a wine inspector. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of fun in show business. (laughs) And, And I think that, all you can do is say, expose, you know, and say, look, you know what? I don't want you to do this. We, we said this to a million times to Sophie. We, we don't want you to go into show business, but she continues to year after year, after year, after year, continue going in that direction. So I feel like we would have been, we, we'd be totally happy if she said, I want to go into nursing. Great. Awesome. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to come in into show business, but if she wants to, then we have to do the best we can to expose as much of it to her. But I don't feel like, I don't feel like this is dragging. Like, it's not like, you know, my company is not going to be Mike Baldessari and daughter lighting design. You know? <laughs> we're, we're not going that, not going that way, you know? So, so I feel like, and I, w- I would say that my advice to you for your kids would be the same thing. Like you can expose them to it. You don't have to force them into it. And I and that's why I circle back to the John Lennon quote. What do you want to be when you grow up? Happy. I think
0: that's the most important thing. That is a great quote. I will have to uh, log that into my quotes that I love Okay. folder. That's a great one. How is uh, growing up in New York in the entertainment business for her? Is she adapting quickly? Yeah. I, I
1: mean, I, I feel like it couldn't be a better place. You, you know, in fact, one of the things we've said to her, you know, she's a pretty 18-year-old girl is like, you've grown up in New York city, you need to make sure you have your spidey senses about your environment. So I I think that, that that's the the beauty of being in a place like New York and stuff is, you know, and she's her whole life. I mean, she learned how to walk in a theater. So she's been around that, (laughs) you know, she's, she's totally comfortable, knows how to be, you know, how to be in a television studio or how to be in a Broadway rehearsal. And, um, so that's awesome uh, you know, she, she has a good respect for it. I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, it's growing up in like the best classroom you could think of.
0: Do you think that you having already braved the waters of making it in New York city, you could easily pave the way for her. And I would imagine you really, really want to be able to give that to her. But if she decides to get out of your wake and say, dad, that's not my thing. You you're willing to just let her go that way. Right?
1: Yeah. I, I'm, I, I mean, I don't feel like and we, we've always said this to her. We are the male ballerina behind her. She's the female ballerina doing pirouettes. And we're just we're just behind her, and we're going to offer a little bit of guidance. But she's got That's to do it. That's a great analogy. You know, she's, she's the female ballerina doing the pirouette. We, we can stand behind her and have our hands on her hips a little bit, but she still has to do it. And we've always said, look, we can't get you a job. You know, we can help you. And we can Mm -hmm. guide you, you know, that's the advantage of having, you know, show business parents is we can help guide her, but we, we still can't get her a job and stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, that's still on her. And like, you know, as she pursues the writing thing, which is awesome, but we're, we're never going to be able to green light her movie or green light her TV (laughs) show. You you know what I mean? So. You know, and, and we've sat down and talked with her, you know, our, our goal, she's getting ready to go to college and all that stuff. And our goal is that, you know, it's called show business. Yep. You have to be able to support yourself, you know, on the other side.
0: And I uh, think that gets
1: lost. I think that gets lost a lot. I, I do a fair amount of masterclass type things for, you know, young kids coming out of college. Uh, I've been a part of the Helmsley internship review board, whatever that's called, the 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 portfolio review for the Helmsley thing. And it's a very tricky thing. And I don't think enough schools are teaching people to be able to provide for themselves. You know, it's again, it's called show business. You know, we also we toured 14 schools before she selected where she was going to go for college. And there was a number of times when my wife and I were kind of elbowing each other saying, I can't believe they just said that, you know, because it's like, are you, I wanted to say to a bunch of these schools, are you creating people who are going to become educators or are you creating people who are going to be able to make a living doing this? Yes.
0: Yeah. We teach a lot more of the show than we do the business in schools these days. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that if you want to design lights, don't become a lighting designer because you're going to end up just doing proposals and spreadsheets and contacts and, w nines and stuff like that. So if you're, if you really want to be a designer, stay the lighting director route and uh, let somebody else hire you to do those things.
1: Well, I, you know what, it's one of the things, what, what I often say to, to kids, I, when I get asked to, to do these sorts of things, here's the, the typical conversation. I, I will say, I've been asked to go speak at this, whatever this is. And, and my wife will say, well, what are you going to tell them? And I always say, I'm going to tell them to go do something else. She said, you can't do that. she said, you can't tell them they're, they're just getting out of college. So I say, all right, I, instead of saying, go do something else, what I'm going to say to them is be open to doing something else. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think is, is critical. It's like, if you're going to go get a, a degree in lighting design, you are not a failure. If you don't get to design on Broadway, mm-hmm. there are a lot of other things that you can do with your skill set." and and that skill set being that you are create you are creative you work hard you have self discipline you play well with others and you can deal with rejection those five things every business wants mhm right if you're going to hire an attorney you want to hire a really good attorney who works hard who's creative you you know, you know what i mean it's so i think that kids who are in college, the arts, at What I, and I, I say this, I have friends of mine who like, you know, want to call me and say, hey, our daughter is thinking about going to college for this. Can you talk to her? And what I usually do is I say, great, let's have a conference call and, and we can all talk. And the thing I say to the parents is, you know, the arts is a great education for a horrible field. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, because it teaches those, it, it you deal with those five things that any business could want, but the business itself is really, really hard. And so I, I would encourage, you know, people come out as a lighting designer. Maybe you're not cut out to be a lighting designer. You might be a great programmer. That's a great job. Really good programmers make a lot of money with health benefits, retirement benefits. Those are all really, really important things, mm-hmm. you know? So you have to be open to it.
0: That is, that is great advice. Uh, you were talking about the analogy of having a male dancer supporting the, the ballerina. Uh-huh. In that role for you, did somebody help support you, uh, Brave the Waters in New York City?
1: I, I can't say that I did. I had a, you know, my family has always been incredibly supportive. And, and that, mm-hmm. you know, as you, Chris, I'm sure you've felt the same way. I, as you get older, you know, you spend a lot of time in your life only heading in one direction. And, and I, I know that I felt this way. I only ever headed in one direction and I never turned to look back and you get to a certain time and something happens and, you know, maybe you run into a high school friend or something like that and, and you turn around and you say, wow, I didn't realize where I had been. And I didn't realize I had all of that support and all of that kind of stuff. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I feel like I was very, very well supported by my family you know, to pursue what I wanted to do. I did have those five qualities that, that I talked about and I was in the USA 829 internship program when I got out, got out of school. That was a really great excuse to knock on doors and stuff. So, so I, you know what, in hindsight, I wish I had a little bit more help. I mean, I, I know that there's plenty of people who were very kind to me and, uh, kind with their time and uh, took my phone calls when I was really nobody. And not that I'm anybody now, but, but you <laughs> know, I, I mean, I have to say somebody like, you know, Jeff Ravitz, he and I have become very good friends. And, you know, he took my phone call in, I don't know, 1989 or something like that, and was just a really nice guy. And to have somebody like that, that has become a, a, a good friend that I can call, he and I don't, really have that much overlap we have some just to be able to call and have very very candid conversations i, I really really value that and and there's a bunch of other people along those lines like I, again it's it's one of those things like we were saying about i've never ha- I, ne- I never had an uncle who could greenlight you know something i was doing or get me a job i never had anything like that but i certainly did have friends and very kind acquaintances who were really great to me i i hear another quick quick one was um Dave Davidian who you know kind of back in the 80s was one of the biggest lighting designers there was he went off and did and did video but he did all of, like the giant Van Halen Monsters of Rock and the giant Bon Jovi shows and all of that kind of stuff and he was kind enough to you know I was working on a local crew at Giant Stadium and I worked my way over to him and you know started chatting with him and I asked him for his, uh, you know, asked him, would I mind? Could I call him and ask him some questions? And he was kind enough to give me his phone number. And that sort of started a conversation and started a, a relationship. And anytime he was at either the Meadowlands or Madison Square Garden, uh, he would let me come and I would listen in on headset. and And that's how I learned how to call follow spots. Was because that's not really something in the theater. You don't really call follow spots the way you do in rock and roll. Right. And so I learned by listening in with him. And I, you know, I was always clicked off. So I could, you know, obviously I didn't want to make any noise, but I would listen. And then as he would make a call, I would do the same thing. So, you know, he would say, standby spots, uh, odd numbered spots to go to frame five, ready and go. And then I would just repeat that myself. And that's how I learned how to do it. It was just incredible to have that kind of support and, you know, just nice people.
0: It sounds like you had to create your own internship program.
1: (laughs) Listen, I, I do feel like I've had a little bit of my own path. I mean, the other person who, you know, you look to emulate, when I was a kid and when I was in college, I did a paper on Jules Fisher because Jules, back in the day, did tours for the Rolling Stones and Kiss and David Bowie, but also as one, I think nine or 11 Tonys, you know, so he was really the the preeminent Broadway designer going back to the late sixties. That was what I wanted to emulate was, Mm -hmm. was to be able to do film and television and Broadway and concerts. And I've been fortunate enough to knock on wood. I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that for the most part.
0: So your diversification in the lighting business was by design. You you knew that you wanted to be diverse and you wanted to cover all all aspects Uh, early on, it sounds like
1: yeah, one hundred percent. I I mean I knew it when I was in college. I in fact, I remember I think I remember writing a a paper or something like that. And it was one of those like, where do you see yourself in 30 years? And I know I said it was lighting the Rolling Stones and lighting the Joffrey ballet and lighting Broadway shows or something like that. I mean, I, I distinctly remember saying that. So yeah. And, and maybe it's one of those things of like, people don't even know you can do that. But yeah. I, and I've had the argument with current college professors uh, at one very, very large school in Boston who basically told me that the head of their program said they could not teach their kids about film and television. And I, like, I, like w- jumped out of my skin when I heard that. Because, look, here, here's the other part. Again, it's called show business. And I've been able to provide for my family. It's not like I'm, I, I'm not turning down jobs left and right. It's not like, oh, I've got the pick of three Broadway shows and six different concert tours and four television shows. It doesn't work that way. I've been able to say yes to these things because I can do them. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it's not yeah. like I'm not turning down oh, I have to turn down two concert tours because I'm doing David Letterman. I I don't, it doesn't work that way. It's more like I have these couple of weeks between theater projects. Oh, look, I can do a couple of episodes of David Letterman and I can do a Netflix special. And you know what I mean? It's, it's about making a living much, much more than it is like that it was a creative. I can't say that it was a creative choice. I always, always wanted to do it. From when I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to do concerts, and Broadway for sure. But it's not like I'm not in a position that, that I'm turning stuff down. Does that make sense?
0: That does. It makes a lot of sense. It, I would imagine that's how you have to progress in that way is by not turning things down. This, If somebody offers you a rock and roll tour and you've your background is theater, you're like, well, yes, I can do that. I'm going to do that. Well, we're going to film it too. Like, oh boy, I better learn how to do that. So yes, I can also do that. And you just have to learn before or as you're doing it.
1: I think that, here's the thing I always say about that. If I waited until I thought I could do something, I would never do anything.
0: That's a great quote.
1: Right? I mean, I I really think that that's true. If you wait, you know, there's a certain part, particularly in our business, there is an aspect of jumping in the deep end. There absolutely is. But it's a very, it can be a very fine line to understand where you are, that you don't overpromise something. If somebody asked me today to be a director of photography, I would say no, because I don't know enough about cameras and lenses and all. I I know enough to get by as a lighting designer, but I don't know enough to get by as a director of photography. Mm-hmm. You know, and LUTs and all of that kind of stuff. So I feel like. It's a fine line to walk. Of how, how do you say yes so that you can jump in the deep end, but you can't drown. You, mm-hmm. you have to be able to jump in the deep end and swim.
0: You have to be very transparent. You have to say like, "Yeah, I I'll try being a DP, but I haven't done it. I'm not. I don't. There's better people than me. But if you if you want me to try it, I'll I'll try it. And you have to go in with with full, full management disclosure. of expectations, full disclosure. Yeah.
1: I think a, a, a better example would be like if you're a programmer, you know, and a programmer, that's one of those things you really have to work, the, work up the ladder. If you're a programmer and you're, you're getting going, you got a couple of years under your belt and all that stuff, and somebody says, you know, we're going to do a live television special uh, where the whole thing has to be busked, whatever, that one you may want to think seriously, think twice about. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, you know what I mean? Because you can't put yourself in a position where you're going to be, you're going to bring the whole thing down, you know, and, and that is a, that is a, on a big television shoot, on a big film shoot, whatever that, that programming position, everything has to go through that person's hands. And that's a very, very tricky position to be in. So that's one place you have to be very careful to not overpromise.
0: And I would imagine nowadays it's becoming more commonplace that all of the different genres that you work in are colliding. I know that's one of the things that you do quite often—is where they're going to do a concert that's also going to be part of a theatrical performance that's also going to be filmed for a movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's kind of my favorite thing to do. You you know, these days it's this whole kind of cross pollination—I call it—where shooting a movie, a concert sequence in a movie sounds pretty simple but it's there's a there's a lot to it and i feel like you know over time i've learned enough of how to talk to programmers and and i know how to walk into a situation just think about this right you're shooting something from the front okay great it can balance all your levels and get the follow spot just right and all of that kind of stuff now they say okay we're turning around and in the amount of time it takes to move the cameras from, you know, in front of the performer to the back of the performer, you have to now adjust all those light cues. Because mm-hmm. now what was all front light is now backlight. All of your backlight is now front light to the camera. So that's the kind of thing that like That's what I love doing because that that is really a challenge to be able to do that. So anyway, I love that kind of cross-pollination. There's also for, as an example, there was a Broadway show that I did a couple of years ago called First Date that had a real rock song in it. And so the best compliment I got was uh, from the set designer who said, oh, it doesn't look like a Broadway version of a rock number. It looks like a rock number in a Broadway show. Nice. You know, so that, that kind of thing where you can take one from the other, or the other one I always, I always use as an example is like, you know, if you're doing a concert tour, how you open the show really matters. The same it does on a Broadway show. You know, it's like, that's the opening of the show, the front of your show, everything about it is super important, right? The portal, the, on a Broadway show, the portal is important because that's the thing closest to the audience. And then how you open the show is absolutely critical. Because that, that you're setting you're setting up the whole evening by how it opens. So we should, you know, in the concert world, take those same things, right? Like the, the front of the show, the things closest to the audience should look really nice. The beginning of the show, you should work on it with your band, other than them just walking out. You mm-hmm. know, there should be some kind of thing because it helps elevate the audience.
0: It is, it is really important to kind of oversee the final and full image and the impact as opposed to just trying to get through each shot one by one and then kind of piece them all together. It's, you definitely need that over that overview to, absolutely. Uh, to stay on track.
1: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and I feel like I'll give you, here's an example. Uh, I did the concerts in the movie Rock of Ages. And um, at the, the end of that movie... Um, there's a sequence that's for the song, Don't Stop Believing. And this this sequence starts out in a club, goes from the club to a full stage that's in in a stadium. And then it ends with this helicopter shot. It's uh, Dodger Stadium, coming out of Dodger Stadium and swinging around and seeing uh, searchlights coming off of the Sunset Strip. So I knew we were doing that going into it. So I designed it, that song, to work with those searchlights at the end. And the way that I did it was I specifically put a gobo, just a three-hole gobo, in the lights we were using in the club. And so you started to have that feel where the song starts out. And then carried that same gobo into the stadium show, which we had shot as an arena, but in post, they made, they made it look like a stadium. But that same <laughs> gobo is in there. And then that felt like those searchlights. And then so you just had a continuity in that number all the way from the beginning, even though it was essentially a club, an arena slash stadium, ending with this helicopter shot of uh, the Sunset Strip. So I used that to tie it all the way together. And that's, it's like, it's a simple thing, but that's where I think good design is, you know, is that there was a thought and there was a creative, you know, a creative thread to tie that all the way through.
0: Yeah. You're using uh, lighting to make the performance that much more cohesive and blend together. That's that's very important. That's something that we can do with lighting, with yeah. some forethought and some planning.
1: Yeah. Listen, I, I think lighting is always telling the story. You know, when I've been asked, you know, what, what is it you do? I say, I'm an orchestrator. I orchestrate with light the same way as, you know, there's a composer comes up with a melody and then hands it off to an orchestrator. And the orchestrator says this, this part has timpani and this part has violins and this part is cellos. I do the same thing. It's just, instead of, you know, snare drums and violins, it's uh, you know, Lico's, Fresnel's and moving lights, Mm -hmm.
0: you know? So yeah, you're using color to create the same emotions,
1: Right. Exactly. Using color for emotion. And then how is it that you tie it together? You know, that, that's one of the things that like, you know, I always kind of say, say this and I do, I do the same thing. Like, I think one of the most successful things you can do in, in concerts is have very controlled use of color so that, you know, a song is no more than really two colors plus white max.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can have one multicolor shit song per show is my, my thought. But, but that kind of self-imposed limitation gives it a cohesiveness, right? So, so that song looks that way. It's not every color in every song, but give the, give the song a look. And then I take that and I do the same thing in, for Broadway shows, you know, is that like you decide what's the emotional two colors for this song. And then I'll do I do the same thing for you know for Broadway type stuff, and I think it helps tell the journey more because we react to color in such in such a way.
0: Yeah, the brain gets overwhelmed with too many colors unless that is what you're going for. If you're looking to overwhelm,
1: yeah, like that's what I said. You, you can do it once, yeah. <laughs> once in a show. the 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 song that's about everybody coming together that's the perfect song to make multicolor, you know. Mm-hmm. But if it's where's where's the emotional center for the song and base it around that. The other thing I always do, uh, and this sounds really silly, but I'll assign like color sets by sports teams. So I'll say, well, this is, this is Green Green Bay Packers. This is New York Knicks. You, You know, so, so I know if I'm doing a Green Bay Packers thing, it's golden green. If I'm doing a Knicks thing, it's orange and blue. But all of those sports teams, I'm sure there's armies of people who pick those colors to be to be very, very, you know, there's a reason why they do that. And there's a reason why those two colors work together. So Kansas City Chiefs is is red and red and gold. And it's a very silly thing, but I think...
0: I don't think it's silly at all. I don't think people outside of the design world realize how much time and effort goes into color selection. Yeah. When it comes down to things like the, the colors that Burger King and McDonald's use, they there was market research done on those colors and they were chosen for a reason because they know how people respond to those colors.
1: Yeah. And the way those two colors, I mean, everybody does color theory and stuff in college, but there's there's a reason why those two colors work so well together.
0: There's a lot of, there's a very strong argument to be made for the popularity of Facebook just based on Facebook blue. That is...
1: Absolutely, very
0: convincing argument to be made that that soothes our brain, and that's what brings us back to it as often as we go to it.
1: I believe that one thousand percent, absolutely.
0: And uh, you know, and
1: and that's also why why do we see so much Congo blue in concerts? You know why? Because it excites the rods and cones in your eyes, and it feels good you know, that color feels good to look at.
0: It's also why we're always pushing for the best and most vibrant reds is because we know the response that comes from a red beam cutting through a video wall. We, we know how powerful that red can be.
1: Yeah, yeah, I,
0: 100%. Uh, one of the times that becomes the most important is when I'm doing corporate events and we're trying to match their logos with the lights and, you know, sometimes they'll have a purple or a brown or something, you're like, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't match that. I have infinite colors, but I don't have purple. I don't have brown. If you want that color, we're well, going to have to get video in to do that color for you. Right. And boy, right. to see the, the disappointment on some people's faces, like, what do you mean you can't do brown? I need, I need yeah. your lights to do gray. Give me gray. Like I'm, I'm so sorry.
1: Yeah. No, listen. And, and that's where I, I, here's another phrase you can use. I use all the time. It's fix it or feature it. So if you can't fix it, then make it into something, you know, and so, it, yeah, we can't really do brown light, but maybe we can do a complementary color that's going to really set it off, you know, set something off in the right way.
0: Oh, that's a good term. I'm going to use that. I'm, I'm yeah. definitely going to give you credit, but I'm stealing that one.
1: All right. You can. If we can't fix it, <laughs> we we'll it.
0: Like, I'm sorry, I can't do purple, but I can do, I can give you yellow, which is going to make your purple pop. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I have to say that that's one of the things just to talk about lighting and talk about gear and all of that kind of stuff is like, I do feel like when it comes to wash lights, are we, and I'll say this, you know, having gone to let this pass LDI, uh, a number of people are, are making these very large non-LED based wash lights. And I understand why from a fiscal point and i I get it but where we're going as an industry is like just give me a big lead head you know an led head that we can put some kind of city theatrical snoot on to control the flare and that's really where we have to go for wash lights Mm -hmm. do do you know what i mean because of the exact reason that you're talking about it's like i i just i need an led engine Because not only do I have to be able to make all of these colors, but I also have to be able to snap them to go along with the video. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like the subtractive mixing of flags and all of that kind of stuff is lost on wash lights. Wash lights should just be additive. Mm -hmm. That's world according to Mike, but that's my two cents, you know?
0: Right on. Well, Ayrton believes in you. We believe that okay, the, yeah. you are absolutely correct and we've <laughs> we're we're banking on that almost completely. Yeah. 100%. Well, right on. Thank you so much for taking the time, Mike. I I feel like we could chat for, for another hour, but I would rather uh, end on there. That was a great place to end in this discussion. So, thank you so much for taking the time, Mike. This is great.
1: Awesome, Chris. Totally my pleasure. Anytime.